Okay, flip to Jeremiah 23. And we're going to um, reference a verse there in the context. And then we're going to uh, look at Revelation 18, verse 4, which you can put your thumb there if you want. You don't have to. This is the State of the Church Address 2020. I can't believe it. It's 2020. Time flies, it seems. But let's, um, let's pray, and then I'm going to read a couple of those verses, and then we'll, we'll get to work. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father and God, you have called us out of the darkness and into your marvelous light, and for that we are thankful. I ask and pray that you would help us to, to understand your word. May your Holy Spirit uh, give us much grace this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. amen. Okay, Jeremiah 23 verse 1 says this, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. And then Revelation 18 verse 4 says this, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. So those are the verses I'm going to be working with. Now, I have done these types of addresses in the past, and I've always tried to use it as an opportunity um, to head into the new year with what you can call a recalibrated perspective. I realize we're towards the end of January already, but here we are nonetheless. Um, this recalibrated perspective, it is hoped, will be both a realignment of our priorities and a refocus of our mission. So those are the two things. Um, we are very, very much in a battle against humanism, which means that realignment, of course, and refocus are good things that we should often consider. Um, there are times when we need to look inward. We need to assess ourselves. We need to look inward. We need to examine um, ourselves, our fellowship, and so on, and making, making sure that we're being diligent, um, diligent with our, with our time, diligent with um, our walk with Christ, diligent with our money, diligent with our jobs, diligent with our children, and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, the whole book of Proverbs is a smattering of, of verses on these topics, being diligent with time, money, job, etc. So, that inward look isn't meant to be selfish, though. It's meant to be sanctifying. So there's a time and a place for that. Um, but if you're only looking at yourself, then we have a different problem. So there's balance. Um, but wise men and women are people who evaluate their present circumstances. They evaluate their present. They deploy appropriate countermeasures against evil and sin and unfaithfulness and so on. And, and temptation and foolishness and all of that. And then they proceed towards the greater goal. It is the foolish person who never evaluates, who never considers holiness, who never considers sanctification, etc., and never strives to really achieve anything in life. That's the fool. Rome wasn't built in a day, we know that, and Christendom isn't built in one lifetime. But our diligence today helps secure our vision tomorrow. There are also times we need to look outward. We need to look outside of ourselves, which is what we're going to do today, of course. Evaluating our present circumstances and utilizing countermeasures are all good things, and I would encourage you all to, to do that. Do that for yourself, for your family, um, your company, your job, whatever it is. Those are good things, and you, you need to use them regularly. But we also need to look ahead, and frankly, we need to determine whether or not the path that we are on is doing us any good in advancing, in advancing Christendom. 
Um, this goes for local churches. It goes for the universal church as well. Now, my aim, of course, is this morning is going to be directed at the latter, the outward looking, of course, especially as it pertains to the universal church. Um, I, I'm preaching to you today, yes, but frankly, I'm, I'm, pe- I'm preaching past you. Um, I'm preaching to pastors here in our city, in our county, in our state, especially, uh, especially the church in our, in our county and the church in, in the United States, of course, as well. And in other words, this is a message for the masses. So it's going to include you, but in a large degree, it's not necessarily directed at you. We are witnessing right now the destruction of the Western world. And this is due in large part because enlightenment ideas have been married to Eastern mysticism. And um, that's brought into key arenas like public schools and colleges and places of influence, especially politics. And as a result, you get this distasteful melting pot we call America. Now, we have a, we have a capitalism problem. But not because capitalism is to blame, but because we have added too much socialism to the recipe. We have, in large part, forsaken much of what the Reformation has given us, had sought to do. And this goes for the sons of the Reformation, too. And I'm particularly talking to those who would be Presbyterian or Reformed in general. Sons of the Reformation who have strayed from what the Reformation had sought to do. See, historically, whenever Christianity went, particularly a a Reformation Christianity, there was a strong development of culture and vocation. Um, Things like, for example, the English common law system. Um, And why? The question is why. Why did when, when this gospel of the kingdom spread so rapidly, why did all these things suddenly spring up? Well, the answer is because God's grace infiltrates hearts, but it doesn't stop there. It infiltrates institutions. It infiltrates the minds of men who create and produce and cultivate things that they were called to do. And that's just what the gospel of the kingdom does. When the gospel of the kingdom is embraced, things change. Things happen. So the preaching, the preaching of the biblical gospel left in its wake um, things like medical advancement, technological progress, um, practical day-to-day purpose and vocation for men and women who, who genuinely desire to acquire wealth, a good and godly pursuit, for the purposes of the kingdom of God. When the Reformation spread across um, Europe and then into the Americas, uh, this renewed vigor for, pros, uh, for, um, for progress in Christendom, it essentially took center stage. There was this renewal movement that happened. Um, it made advances in agriculture. I, when we had first moved um, back to Michigan, I remember that summer riding in a giant, I mean, this thing was huge, a huge combine. They were harvesting in July the, the wheat. And um, Eli was really little, if you remember that. We were in the cab with a, a farmer friend of ours, and he's not even driving the thing. Okay, he's just kicking back in the air conditioning, making sure everything's okay. He literally has his field GPS coordinated so that the tractor runs by itself. And he's getting real time like weight on how much grain he's getting. And I'm just I'm like, holy cow, that is post-millennial if I've ever seen anything. But, but whenever Christianity went, agriculture grew. 
Uh, we didn't have to struggle with famines because people figured out ways to, to do things better. Um, uh, business improved, trade. All, uh, suddenly we're producing a massive amount of, you know, you think of the Industrial Revolution, a massive amount of products being shipped all over the world. Um, travel, people able to travel places that would have taken, you know, months, if not years to get somewhere, we can get there in a matter of hours. So Christianity, in other words, was a force to be reckoned with. Of course, the downfall in West, of Western civilization, uh, particularly here in America, began the moment the Puritans gave themselves over to rationalism and slave ships began to dock in their ports. This rationalism was a recipe, of course, for disaster. Instead of servanthood dominion, the church began to compromise on social issues all in the name of, well, the church doesn't get involved in politics. Am I my brother's keeper? Slavery being the forefront of it, as if owning another person is merely a political issue. Like abortion, right? See, instead of biblical reformational maturity speaking into, for example, the founding documents of our nation, men like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, to uh, quote the uh, preeminent Virginians, right, they were heavily influenced by David Hume and men like John Locke, humanists from England and so on, and from Europe, and they brought humanism into the ranks of our beloved Constitution. And what you should know is that it was a noose to begin with. Add together several hundred years of systemic oppression of blacks, a resultant bloody civil war, a centralized federal government bureaucracy enacted by Lincoln, and you get statism and tyranny running rampant, running rampant like a toddler in a candy store whose blood sugar is devastatingly low. Now, when I say that we're watching the downfall of Western civilization, I'm not saying that it's because of the past 50 years. You know, if we could only go back to the 50s, before the 60s when things got a little crazy. You know, if we could just go back, the roaring 20s, right? If we could just go back to that time. No, no, no. I'm not saying that. Nor am I saying that the blame lies squarely on the socialistic liberals occupying our political offices. I'm not blaming them either. I'm also not an alarmist who sounds the alarm at every turn, offering up no hope or plan. I just want to yell loudly. Why are we yelling? Sort of moment. I'm saying that it's been a mess here in America since the beginning, and it's the church's responsibility. It's the church's responsibility. Um, the, the state of America is the direct result of the state of the church, and it's not pretty. And I would also argue, as a footnote, that probably the downfall of our culture is actually a good thing because out of the ruins, God will rebuild himself a kingdom. Now, I chose those two texts that I referenced earlier to make the point I'm making here today. Um, in Jeremiah 23, we have a passage that addresses the shepherds of Israel, the pastors, the leaders, the elders of Israel. Um, Jeremiah brought prophetic woes uh, to them, which are what we call a covenant lawsuit. He was literally, as an oath, bringing down God's judgment and sanctions on them for their disobedience. Um, 
to these leaders who had, uh, verse 1 says, they had destroyed and they had scattered God's elect. So these so-called, these so-called leaders, they had forsaken their calling to care for God's people through preaching and teaching and counseling and education and all the things that God values and deems appropriate for his own particular social order. Their inept behavior, of course, had driven God's people away, which means that God is going to fire them for their, from their jobs. That's why scripture will call them a hireling. He's going to fire them from their jobs and hire actual shepherds who will actually feed the sheep and who will lead the way. God, the text says, will make them increase. Let's, let's, let's examine what, and I, I just pulled these out from the text as I read it this week, but the, the shepherds and prophets, they were guilty of, of several things. They were guilty in many ways. One, they were neglect, neglectful. They were neglectful in their task to care for God's people. How does that apply today? Well, pastors are CEOs, don't you know? They abandoned the truth of the law. They opted instead for popular opinion and relativism. Well, how does that apply today? Well, pastors today preach nice messages to nice people in nice churches because they don't want to offend or alienate anyone who may or may not have an erroneous view. Jeremiah criticizes them, calling them adulterers. They were minimizing the importance of the family and thus bringing destruction on the covenantal unit. It's not enough to whine about the family today. Oh, the liberals, they just want to destroy the family. Well, how does this apply today? Let me tell you. Pastors defend the humanist government school institution and thus they contribute not only to the destruction of the family, because now our children are not being taught a Christian worldview, but they help enlist God's children into Satan's humanist army. God warned Israel's shepherds because not only of that, they had profaned the temple with their lack of prayer and useless empty rituals. How does that apply? Well, I think we kind of know. Millions and millions of dollars spent on buildings that are occupied a couple hours once a week. Pastors believing that the height of the Christian experience is a Sunday morning and not the kingdom of God. Jeremiah criticizes the shepherds because they had made false prophecies. How does that apply today? Well, pastors and teachers today believe and preach that we can't win the battle. Can't win. Don't try to win. Heavens, don't try to win. We can't, we can't win. Christ, he's just going to come back soon. What else did Jeremiah, Jeremiah criticize the shepherds? Well, they were wolves who whispered sweet niceties to people, leading them to destruction. You can read this chapter for yourself later. It's all in there. Today's preaching resembles a TED Talk with metaphors and hyperboles and rarely doctrinal content, which leads to social action. Verse 22 says this, But if they had stood in my counsel and caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. In short... They stopped preaching repentance of sin and started preaching indulgence of sin. Their aim was their own self-interests, their own interests, their own um, social standing, their own kingdom, not the kingdom of God, and thus God would judge them swiftly. Now, that's just a very quick overview of Jeremiah 23. There are other passages where God goes right after them. But I want you to check out Revelation 18 verse 4. 
this verse kind of fits into this context, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain why. Revelation verse eight, uh, chapter 18, verse 4 says, I, that's John speaking, heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues, known as the doctrine of come-outerism. Here God calls his elect people to abandon the institutional church of the day and come out. I am very much aware that this will be a controversial point. But here I am. This Babylon, Revelation 18, is about Babylon, the harlot. This Babylon was the apostatized group of Jewish leaders, the covenantal leaders of Israel, who, of course, received God's judgment in AD 70 because of this. The faithful, listen, the faithful were told to abandon them. Now, that's not easy. They had to abandon everything they had known. The temple, the temple was everything. The temple is where education took place. They had synagogues who were kind of uh, outposts of, of, a, of a social order all over the place. But they, they, uh, the, the temple was Grand Central Station for everything in Jewish life. That's where you went to worship God. That's where you made sacrifices. That's where your sins were laid on the scapegoat and sent out into the wilderness on the Day of Atonement. That, that's where everything was. And what is... What does Jesus say? Leave it all. Leave it all. See, in modern parlance, we would call it emptying the pews. Um, the corruption of the pastors and elders and leaders, coupled with the unfaithfulness of ostensible believers, believers in name only, is worthy of God's plagues, worthy of God's sanctions, and as a result of that, worthy of our abandonment. That's the doctrine of commoderism. In other words, we need to divorce ourselves from unfaithfulness and apostasy. Not try to, you know, play the false peace game. Oh, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Yeah, you know, our, our leaders are rarely interested in issues of justice, rarely interested in the kingdom, but boy, do they share nice stories in their sermons. And I just leave, I feel warm. I feel warm. That stuff is what I'm talking about today. Now, as a side note, this does require that we know how to identify unfaithfulness and apostasy, and not just throw that around carelessly because we have several different people in different camps, especially when we consider the church at large. We have people who just, they don't know. They don't know, and we should be patient with them. But then there are people who know and they don't care. That's a whole different category altogether. How can you deal with the injustice if you don't deal with the idolatry? And how can you identify either apart from the law of God? That's the paradigm we need to work with. Now, am I suggesting because I can hear the rebuttal already. Am I suggesting that every single person should leave every single church and waltz around to their own drumbeat? No, I am not. The answer is no to that. Just, I'm going to say it again. No, okay, just so we're clear. What I am suggesting, however, is that it's very difficult to be a biblical Christian in today's churches. It's very difficult to be a biblical Christian in today's churches. Well, that's redundant, right? Yes, biblical Christian is redundant, after all. <laughs> biblical Christian is the only type of Christian there is, like a born-again Christian. Are you a born-again Christian? 
uh, that's, that's what the definition means. It means biblical, it means born again, and so on and so forth. But biblical, we need to know, is far more than holding the Bible in high regard. To be biblical is to take the totality of scriptures and obey it. Even the hard parts we don't like. You, you, we don't just believe in our belief that it's the word of God. We must obey it. We must carry it out. We must be faithful. See, this means, of course, pursuing justice, pursuing mercy for the least of these. This means that we repent for treating the local church as if it were a mini temple, which Jordan um, covered last week, which ought to be heard by every single pastor in this nation. It means that we are deconstructing ungodly institutions and reconstructing godly ones that are fit for obedience to Christ. In short, it means that we need to be taking seriously the great commission that Christ intends to accomplish. With or without us, by the way. He will accomplish that great commission. With or without, right? So just come along peacefully. And this is very hard to do. This stuff is very hard to do when institutionalism has taken over. Now, I want to make this next point by explaining in a nutshell what it is we do here and why we function the way we do. In a very brief nutshell, I would encourage you to go back to the very first few sermons that I preached two and a half years ago, which was all foundational stuff for, for us and building on what it is we're trying to do. We're going to come back to the problem of institutionalism. Cross and crown exists to serve the kingdom of Christ, period. Period. That's it. We exist to serve the kingdom of Christ, period. We are decidedly self-conscious about this belief. And while many churches would probably say that, though, of course, we agree with that statement, the reality is their actions do not align up. Here's what I mean. Our task as Christians who have chosen to work together for practical reasons, theological reasons, all good and righteous things, our task, we know, and we say it a lot, is to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life. That's not a new thing. We've been harping on that for two and a half years now. We are building Christendom. Okay? Now, and I realize for most pastors, they're going to balk at that idea. Build Christendom? Are you, are you crazy? We live in a post-Christendom era. To which I say, we've never lived in a post-Christendom era. It's always been Christendom since Christ died and was raised. It's always been Christendom. But we are working in that, in that regard. Self-government, right? Family government, church government, civil government are all lawful means and arenas in which we labor. We need self-governed Christians in God-honoring families, laboring with others in biblically saturated ecclesias, pursuing economic productivity and social justice for the advancement of the kingdom and the glory of God. So that's what we need. That's what God wants. But it's not what we have, by and large. The question then becomes this. Why is it that most churches do not do any of these things or say any of these things? Why aren't churches interested in economics and supporting the creation of business and entrepreneurship? Why not? Why is that rarely discussed? Why, why aren't churches active participants in God-honoring social justice activities? Why is it that pastors and elders have elevated themselves, wittingly or unwittingly, as the gatekeepers of all institutional activities. 
Again, I reference Jordan's message from last week. Why is it the pastors do not preach biblical law or economics or justice for our preborn neighbors, as if the Bible does not contain blueprints for these things? Pastor, I'm talking to you. Why not risk your job and do the right thing? I think the answer is rather obvious, isn't it? Institutionalism. Institutionalism, which I define as Christians making the institutional church the center of all center of all Christian activity. Institutionalism has a chokehold on Christianity, and as a result, we are seeing continual the continual degradation of culture. When Christians view their faith as a simple pragmatic activity to check off their Sunday to-do list, uh, and, and when pastors encourage this idolatry by remaining silent in the face of wide-scale idolatry and injustice, the covenantal curses of God are rightfully upon them. Um, I reference to you Deuteronomy 28, verse 44. The church has not been the head. She has become the tail. And listen, having led and participated in this house church assembly for over two years now, I can say with confidence that the evangelical discipleship slash obedience problem stems from a lack of authentic and true decentralized kingdom-focused community and purpose. When one attends, already a problem, an activity at a large budget-goring facility, one is faced with clever marketing, all designed to induce a consumer into joining their particular brand of community. That's why you won't find an abolitionist sign in the lobby. Life groups, community groups, etc., uh, can oftentimes be marketing ploys to try and act like a person can experience genuine community apart from the kingdom through programs and life together activities like painting fences and cleaning playgrounds, which can be good and helpful things. I'm not saying let's go burn the playgrounds down. <laughs> but to the contrary, here's what we need to know. True community is forged in the battle. True Community is forged in the battle. The Latin word is communitas. This communitas happens when soldiers deploy to a particular region for a particular task, taking no prisoners. See, the, the truth is, there is a battle going on in evangelical churches, um, but it's not the type of battle we want. It's usually arguments over carpet colors and programs and staffing and so on. Been there, done that. But there is not a real battle, not when members are inoculated with milk and ease, and certainly not a battle that matters for the kingdom. The battle we know lies in the world. And when you're not engaged in the battle, why would anybody want to be in a purposeless and pointless community known as a church sometimes? Why would they be? Why? You want community? Let me tell you. Fight together. Participate in a few skirmishes together. Eat meals together regularly and giving glory to God. Stay on the same mission with the same objective, the same financial priority, one that is clearly articulated and defined. Share a worldview and a passion for seeing that worldview come to fruition. I bet if you ask the average churchgoer in America, what's your worldview? What? Am I supposed to have one of those? 
see when you when you have when you have a battle and you and you have true community that's forged in the battle guess what happens you start to put the pressure where pressure is needed you take the principles of war we have a we have, one of the principles is economy of force we have a huge economy of force problem we didn't in Richmond but we had it on March for Life it was a problem there was a lack of a true economy of force where you put the pressure with the numbers you need at the particular place at the particular time. We can't do it. We have, we need to work hard in that area. We need to take them. We need to take these principles. We need to ex execute them with efficiency. We need pastor. We need more and more and more Christians putting the pressure where the pressure is needed. But heaven help us if we continue down the path of institutional idolatry. Pastors, instead of being a domineering gatekeeper, be a foot-washing encourager. You and your petty kingdom is not the hope of the world. And let me say this while we're here. The local church is not the hope of the world either. This is a popular phrase in the Nine Marks crowd. It's not. The kingdom of Christ is the only hope of the world. So keep your people focused on that and not your institutional brand. And the sad thing, you're not going to get this in most churches today. And you're certainly not going to get it apart from a comprehensive faith for all of life. And I'm going to trigger some people, social justice included. See, at present, Virginia, as you know, is in distress. Severe distress. Massive, worldwide-grabbing they're all, everybody's paying attention. Distress. And let me tell you, it's not primarily because Democrats took control, though they're clearly adding to the desolation. It's not primarily because of Republicans, who are oftentimes just as socialist as their Democratic colleagues, though there is fair share to blame there, too. The distress is because shepherds aren't doing their job. There is a bottleneck in our ability to unleash kingdom soldiers for kingdom advancements. And the bottleneck is found in our local churches who have decided to, during the war, sit back, clean their guns, and memorialize their weapons rather than deploy them. If they even realize they have a weapon. And pastors are the ones who are keeping them occupied on themselves. Gun rights through draconian regulations and infringements. Medical tyranny through mandatory vaccination. Abortion on demand continues unabated. And there is talk right now in Virginia of writing that freedom into the Virginia Constitution. The right to abort a pregnancy at any stage. There are penalties being talked about for criticizing politicians who may think you're harassing them, whatever that means. That's not a joke. That's being talked about. All of these are currently on the front line of the current legislator's uh, agenda. Unless I'm being misunderstood, listen carefully, blackface Northam is not the problem. He's not the problem. He is the resultant fruit of the problem. And he is nothing in the face of God. Listen, God can make him eat grass and graze the Fauquier County countryside if he wants, just like he did Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? If he chooses to do that, and I would love to see that, by the way. But the problem is a lack of repentance and a lack of kingdom focus, and this is a result of pastors keeping unwitting Christians trapped inside a disobedient model of Christianity. And the question I'm asking, pastors of Virginia, listen to me, please. How bad does it have to get? 
How bad does it have to get? Really, how, how bad does it have to get before pastors themselves wake up and begin equipping their people for social action? That's your job. How bad does it have to get before pastors start slashing their budgets and funding actual Christendom-shaping projects? How bad? Please hear me loud and clear, pastors in Warrington and all throughout Virginia and the United States. It is high time you wake up from your slumber. It is time for Christians to come out to leave this impotent, disobedient version of Christianity. And listen, churchgoers, hold your leaders accountable. Hold them accountable. If, if they will not listen after much persistence, I'm telling you to leave. You be obedient, but don't you dare participate in the disobedience. You don't need their permission. You don't need their permission to serve Christ in his kingdom. You just don't. It is high time for pastors and elders and church leaders to wake up, to lead the way, to put the pressure where the pressure is needed, to plant to advance and to sustain Christian civilization. And let me tell you, we cannot sustain that which we have not even come close to advanced. And we can't advance something we haven't even planted. That's why there's a bottleneck. Why weren't there abundance of pastors speaking out during the most recent Second Amendment sanctuary movement? Why not? Where are the pastors preaching against medical tyranny, which is happening in our state right now? Where, why aren't more pastors equipping their churches to do battle? The time, of course, was yesterday. And listen, as we finish this out, Pastor, you can pray all day for revival. Go ahead, pray all day for revival. But let me tell you, revival will not come for a long while because the church is not desperate enough. We're, we're, we're Israel in the wilderness, right? The, the Red Sea doesn't even look all that deep. We could probably swim. And let's look, Pharaoh's away back. We, got, we have time. Let's not panic. Let's not get caught up in immediate obedience, for crying out loud. See, if you think you've got the time, you don't. God's sanctions will come upon us. Indeed, they are coming upon us. And pastors, let me give you one final exhortation. We should never, ever, 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 ever try to gently take an idol apart Idols are never dislodged. They are never taken away piece by piece while being careful. Stop being careful. Start being faithful. And what does faithfulness look like in a time of distress? Well, it looks like unwavering courage and resolve in the face of idolatry. And it starts with repentance. And repentance starts with you. May the church of Jesus Christ turn to the true gospel of the kingdom and do so quickly. Let's pray. Father, you have told us in your word and you've exhibited to us in time and space that you are a long-suffering God. But the truth of the matter is, we know without repentance, that long-suffering is simply a noose with a very long rope. And, and Father, we confess our ineptitude. We confess our disobedience. We confess... We confess here, God, as Cross and Crown Church, not only have, have we been caught sometimes without the proper focus, but we confess on behalf of our brothers and sisters, just like Daniel, who interceded. God, we confess that sin. We confess that idolatry. We confess that, frankly, we just don't care. 
and God, in that confession, I would beg of you and pray that your spirit would grant grace. And that's why it's grace. We know we don't deserve it. But we know that wide-scale repentance is needed. A proper focus on Christendom is needed. But we know that that is never going to happen without your intervening grace and mercy. So we beg of you, Father. We beg of you to give us that sight, give us that wisdom, and take this foolishness away from us. We ask this in Christ's powerful name. Amen.